affirming the physical, not detaching ourselves from it. Amen? This is the Christian story, is raw grit, flesh, and blood, and dirt, and drink, and sex, and soul. It is an affirmation in Genesis 1, if you've ever looked at the scriptures before. Genesis 1 begins with God made the world, and he said it was good. And then he came to us, and he was like, it's what? Very good. Can I hear you say good? I know it's hot. Can I hear everyone say good? God said he made the world good. And so though the reality of brokenness and sin are ever present, we begin there and we work toward renewal. We're at the end of scriptures. The image is God coming down and making this world good, renewing and restoring his creation. And so it's why we often use the phrase, we are joining God in the renewal of all things. That's why being a part of sanctuary church means getting our hands dirty with the things outside of church programming. Some of the most involved people in our church, the most active people who are a part of this outpost of love and renewal here are not folks that just do like media on Sunday or run a, run a dinner or help meet with folks, though those things are good, but that we are to be people who are a sent people. To be involved in church is to be involved in the grit of life, celebrating, serving, loving. And so the Psalms, they're not giving us a playbook of how to do all this. We've got a lot of scriptures for that. No, no, no. The Psalms are giving us a songbook. The Psalms are giving us a soundtrack to make sense of the real loss, the real pain, the real joy that exists in this world and what it means to be honest before God. So I get Psalm 84 today and uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't want this, this idea to ruin this Psalm for you. I just realized this as I was coming up here that my idea around Psalm 84, the way I tend to look at Psalm 84, right, experienced you know, mars the way, or taints the way we look at all scripture. So forgive me, one, if you have no context for this, and two, if this context is horrifying for you. I don't want to ruin this psalm. But for me, Psalm 84 is like, is, is that one emo love song. It's that, it's that highly emotional, hard on your sleeve. The whole record is like, I just can't stand the, you know, like my significant other and the world is awful. But then there's that one song that's just full of joy and ridiculousness. This psalmist says things, right? Jen, Jen uh, for just read this text to us. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I didn't know what to search for on Google to come up with other love songs that express that sentiment, but suffice to say, it's basically in every love song ever. I would do everything and give up everything for one moment with you. Just, I'm pretending my wife is right back there. She's not, I'm not sure where she is. Forgive me if I'm looking awkwardly in your direction. <laughs> Someone's like, pastor's creepy. It's the, it's the better is one moment. 
right? We, we gauge time by quality of it and how much time we get in it, right? And too often we become obsessed in our culture with how much time we have. I've got, I really wanna live, right? It's our, it's our, it's our I wanna keep living. It's why oftentimes, and forgive me if this hits close to the bone, but I think this is a reality that oftentimes with end of life things, it's all about extending sometimes the life one more day, which is understandable. And it doesn't ask the question of quality. It doesn't ask the question of, of worth of presence in the moment. And this writer in his poetic, um, you know, soliloquy, diatribe piece here, this psalms, this song to be sung is better is one day than a thousand elsewhere with you, God. Better is one day. I looked up my thousand day birthdays. Some people like to count their birthday. It's a very small, odd, cultish sect of humanity, but they count their birthdays every thousand days. So my next thousand day birthday, um, I forget when it is now. I'm not gonna go, it's in my notes somewhere. And I was realizing that's a fair amount of time. That's a fair amount of life that goes by. The psalmist is telling us that the quality of time spent is the most important thing. So some context for this psalm. Uh, This psalm is a psalm of pilgrimage. Anyone ever been on a pilgrimage before? Anyone have something they wanted to go? I know a lot of people, how many Lord of the Rings fans are there? Yeah, how many of you have gone to New Zealand and done the like, you know, because now Mordor is in New Zealand. You know, I don't know how that worked out, um, you know, with the, with the movie. But anyone make that pilgrimage, like, for that reason? Anyone have, like, a movie that they love that they've had to go and, like, see where the thing was shot? Yeah? What was it? What was it? Orange is the new black. <laughs> Where's so it's like an abandoned hospital somewhere. Awesome. That was probably really sweet. <laughs> Scary. Um, <laughs> I love it. So the um, the a friend of a friend of uh, Pastor Rick's over at North. Uh, apparently they showed. So they've been doing these movies in the park, and they did one on Goonies. How many of you love Goonies? Yeah, like Goonies is like one of those movies, right? For a lot of us, this wasn't even our generation's film, but you. You can't not watch Goonies. I cannot wait to introduce my daughter to Goonies. It's going to be an epic event. Yeah, so apparently this, uh, this gentleman, I think I have his name in here. Uh, his name's Lee. Um, and he went to Astoria, Oregon to see where Goonies was filmed. 36-year-old, grew up loving this movie. Next, next slide. Next slide. You guys remember this, right, Goonies? How many of you know that scene? Right? Come on. It's like, it's, the, it's there. Right, you know he's like, oh my gosh, it's the, it's all the, it's, that was in the movie. Next slide. <laughs> Come on. Come on. For all of you who don't know Goonies, you need to go home and watch Goonies today. That's your homework assignment. Next slide. The county jail. Oh, and next one. I think there's one more. Yes. This is a a psalm of pilgrimage. So three times a year, you would go to Jerusalem. Now, it depends on when this was written, and there's a lot of historical things that we could kind of wade through. But we see midway through this psalm, and we're going to walk through this basically verse by verse in a moment. 
and just spend some time reflecting on what the psalmist is reflecting on. But this psalm is about pursuit. It's going to, when he says better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, it's important that it's okay for us to turn courts into a metaphor. It's one day in God's presence. And in fact, on this side of Jesus, if you know your Christian theology, that the temple is something that we as a community are. Now, you, it's, in other words, there was a moment in time where the only time you had access to God was in the temple and like a direct before the face of God, which by the way is what in the presence of God means. In the Hebrew, the presence is before the face of God. So you'd have to go to the temple, you'd take a pilgrimage. Some argue this is literally like just where God decided for a season in the world to reside. Others have made the comment that this is actually lines up with sort of human consciousness that this is like the way in which humanity understood God and the only way they could have understood God. And so God is actually meeting them where they're at and saying, all right, come, embody similar sacrifices and then he pulls them forward. And then Jesus says, I've come at the culmination of the ages. I've come at a time where humanity could wrap its mind. Either way, we have this image of of the scriptures of being like, this is where you go to experience and be before the face of God. Better is one day in the actual physical temple than a thousand elsewhere. The reason why this is so crucial and important for us is because even though we don't have a temple to go to, because on this side of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit, we don't need to make a physical pilgrimage. It's often a spiritual one is that we see before us the longing and ache. Better is one day I will go on the long journey to just be in that place where God is. We learn something about life and the, and the, and the hunger and a culture in our heart of the pursuit of God when we read this. The psalmist is saying better is one day in your courts in your place than a thousand elsewhere. There's a moment in the psalm with the birds, right? Jen just read where he's looking up and many, right, many commentators comment like he probably just was seeing all of the birds that were nestled in the wall. How wonderful are these birds who can just be near like the, the radiant, like, <laughs> like force rays of like God in the temple. Like just looking around, better is one day here than a thousand elsewhere, anywhere else. This is a psalm of pilgrimage. We read this agonizing then unrest that drove him to this. Going through this valley, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, it says in verse five. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion, in the temple. This longing and longing and longing that the writer is saying, even in the journey to the temple, there's something blessed and beautiful and full of life and hope. The Valley of Baca, uh, I read as many commentaries, commentaries that I could find on that particular place. Some argue that it could be this place, it could be that place. Um, 
but most say, I mean, baka means just tears. Whether there was an actual physical place or not, they're not sure, but they do know the valley of tears. This is, the, this is life. As the pilgrim sets out on his journey, probably at the Feast of Tabernacles, and to go to this particular, to go to the temple and sit in the presence before the face of God. He's saying that even the journey is blessed. There's a blessing in the hunger, in the walking through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears. How many of you are in a valley of tears right now? How many of you are in a place of unrest right now? The psalmist is saying even on the journey, there's a blessing in the actual pilgrimage, not just in the arrival place in the temple. There is an agonizing unrest that drives him to this. And so to go back, I'm kind of jumping a little bit, in verse two, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. So before the writer has even gone on this pilgrimage, he yearns and faints for the courts of the Lord. Writers comment, this is like a shrill crying out. This is what led me to my emo song, Revelation. Any of you know the song, Hands Down by Dashboard Confessional? Come on, right? So the, the, this is gonna be so embarrassing. I think you can take out your video cameras if you'd like to hit this one. Right, the... <laughs> The chorus of this song, again, I don't wanna ruin this song for you, is the singer singing at an ungodly decibel that no male should really try to hit. And it's just, my hopes are so high that your kiss might kill me. So won't you kill me so I die happy. I mean, come on, it's like schmaltz. Thank you, thank you very much. My heart is yours to fill or burst, to kick or carry it's just like, hands down, this is the best day I can ever remember, he sings out. There's a shrillness, a joy, a craving that this writer, this, this band Ashburn confessionalist writer, Chris Grau, is just crying out in the most juvenile, high school, amazing, hard on your sleeve type way. My hopes are so high that your kiss might kill me. Oh, gag me. Except that's kind of awesome, right? Come on. There's a yearning and a crying out. At no point in this sermon is my goal to make you feel guilty that you don't yearn for the presence of God. My desire would be, and this is my desire literally every Sunday we get together. I mean, beyond Sunday, but I think Sunday's a great place for it that you would begin to learn the qualities and textures and character and voice of God more and more. That worshiping together as a community, you begin to experience the presence because I am quite confident that I don't have to drum anything up to get you to want God more. When you are faced with the presence of God, you want nothing else. When you are in the presence of God, when you are at rest in his love, when you're experiencing the push and pull of God Almighty, it's good enough. You can turn and run from it. People have throughout history. Deuteronomy, it says, I lay before you the choice of life or death. We can choose the way of life. We can choose to say yes to the grace of God. We can choose to accept what God has done for us, what God wants to do in us and through us, and we can ignore it. But to come before the presence of God is an overwhelming thing. 
my hopes are so high <laughs> that your kiss might kill me. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. I mean, come on. This is where Karaba got it from. I'm kidding. So he looks up at the temple walls. Even the sparrow has found a home. Even the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house that are ever praising you. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are you who dwell in the house of the Lord who are ever praising you. Blessed are you who are awake and aware of the God who is with us. Blessed are you who come before God in worship. Blessed are you who sing praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forever. For endless days we will sing your praise. O Lord, O Lord our God. Blessed are you who get into the rhythm of doing that. Blessed are you who reorient yourself around the reminder that you are not God, that God is God, and God is the source of all love and healing and beauty and restoration. That blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. You need strength for a pilgrimage. Blessed are you who have the strength to continue to pursue God. Blessed are you who have the strength, God's peace and rest upon you. This is the pilgrimage part. This isn't you've arrived. It's why Jesus says, right? He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not blessed are those who are full with righteousness. Blessed are those who have it all together. Blessed are those who've arrived. Blessed are those who have a perfect spiritual experience all the time. Blessed are those who just know the presence of God and God's like constantly talking in their ear in loud, audible, very clear ways. Blessed are those on the pilgrimage. Blessed are those on the way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who have an ache in their belly for being aligned with God and the things of God, justice and righteousness. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through life, as they pass through the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rain also covers it with pools. As they go, as they set their hearts on the place where God's glory dwells, as they set their hearts on God, stuff just comes to life as they go. There is joy in the journey. Verse six, there's joy in the journey, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. His heart and his posture and his cry out to God is, God, look, look. Better. Verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now, this is interesting. If you have your Bibles, 
Go to the right, the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 84. This is the psalm that we're in right now. Just look at the very beginning of it, because in some ways we didn't actually, we, we read the beginning of the actual psalm, but we didn't kind of read from the beginning of how it's written there in your scripture. For the director of music, according to Giddeth, of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Who are the sons of Korah? Now, there's a long history, but basically you have, um, there are three different groups, family groups, and one of them is the Kohath people, and they had a particular task in the temple. So different families had different tasks. You'd be like the Shuchuk family. The Shuchuk family is in charge of all things, you know, looking awesome, Right? And so, <laughs> and so they're just in charge of like all things aesthetic, making this place just so uh, aesthetically wonderful as you walk in. And then you have, uh, this is going to turn bad if I start actually trying to make up examples on the spot. You have different families who are in charge of the, this is the family who's going to do the, the, the teaching and come around and the, what is essentially the sacraments. There's three different families who have different tasks to make the temple be what it is supposed to be as they travel. This is before the actual physical temple is set up. The people of God have been rescued by the great, they've been rescued in God's grace. They've been given, this is what it means for us to live together and they are journeying. And so as they journey, they have this physical symbol with them, these reminders, they set up the tent and the tabernacle as they go and this is how they worship. It's the pop-up church and different families have different tasks of how to do this. So the Kohath was one group that uh, had the task of, uh, again, lots to share. I'll say this, the Kohath tribe did not like or the family did not like their job. They didn't like it. They did not like what was given to them. It was a lot of carrying. They didn't get to experience certain things that some of the other people had to experience. And so the sons of Kohath, or the one son of Kohath, got together with a few other malcontents, 250 of them, it says in Numbers, and they begin to basically stage a coup against Moses. Moses is leading the people and it's essentially this. Who said that you get to be the priest? Who said? We see this mirrored elsewhere in scripture. Who said? Why you? There's a sense of entitlement and pride and not being at rest with what God had given them and it begins to push back. Moses catches this. They, uh, again, long story, and basically these 250 are called out. Moses says, look, if they really are doing the wrong thing, God is going to take their life in a rather spectacular way. And if I'm wrong, they'll just die of old age. You can read this whole story in the book of Numbers and First Chronicles. And uh, it turns out that Moses was right, and they get swallowed up, and uh, things aren't so well for them. But it appears that, I don't know if it's like a young, young child or a grandson, but some of the sons of Korah live on. So Korah is the son of Kohath. Kohath initially had the problem. Korah rebels with the 250 people. But there are these sons of Korah that are still around. They didn't join in with the coup of the 250. This is important because seven generations later, 
They're actually writing songs in the temple. But the job that the sons of Korah are given are to be at the door. They are doorkeepers. They're the ones outside the temple. They were ones for seven generations simply faithfully served at the outside of where all the action was in the temple, but they came and they faithfully served. The psalmist here is pressing this point home that we've already all understood, but he wants you to keep singing it. And so it hits rather close to home when he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Some translations point out the fact that this is, I'd rather be a beggar at the temple gate than be wealthy and in a place outside of God. He is pushing this point home. There is no better place than with our Father. There's just no better place. There is no other pursuit worth being on. There's no other pilgrimage worth being on. There is no treasure that trumps this. I'd rather be a dork. He was finally in and able to worship. And he was like, hey guys, I know the benefit of even just being outside the action of where the presence of God is. He's looking up at the birds, maybe generations of the sons of Korah, just looking at the temple gates, wanting to go in and just Wow, even these birds have got it. How beautiful that they even get to be near and cared for and surrounded by the presence of God. This is amazing. These little pictures just pressing the point home over and over. I'd rather be a doorkeeper or I'd rather be, if we're to understand it, I'd rather be a poor beggar outside the temple gate. I'd rather be not even quite there than to be so far from it, better is one day in your courts than thousands and thousands elsewhere. The psalm challenges our ledger. It challenges our budget, like our budget of our time. It challenges our value. It's a small amount of this is way better than a large amount of this. This psalm is about knowing where the life is. This psalm is about having an accurate sense of reality. It's about knowing what's really, really real and what's not. What's more real and what's less. What's more valuable and what's less. It's about knowing with clarity what's truly worth it. Jesus asked this question of his disciples, and it's so piercing. Jesus asks, what do you want? What do you want? Not what do you think. What do you want? Most educators and philosophers point out that that is what drives the human spirit. Our telos is what we want. You are what you want. You are what you love. You're not what you think. You're not what you cognitively ascend to. You are what you love. What do you love? What do you want? Is it reflected 
in the values, in the rhythms, in the day-to-day actions? Is there a pilgrimage even happening at all? Now, when we talk of pilgrimage, this side of Jesus, we talk about a pilgrimage of the heart. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are not God, but if your faith is in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Our journey, in many ways, is simply an inward one or a waking up. Our pilgrimage is the daily transformation of the rhythms of our life, the daily transformation of the rhythms that it would actually reflect the pursuit of where the life is. A pursuit of where the life is. It is a a spiritual essentialism. It is making a to-don't list so you know what you're going to be about in this next season, in the pursuit of God. We're going to talk a lot going into the fall of being a church that has a rich culture of pursuit. Paul says in Philippians 3, I consider everything garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. That's where the life is. My hopes are so high that your kiss might kill me. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Even on the pilgrimage, I hunger and thirst for the presence of God. Even as I go, blessed are those who are walking toward the reality and beauty of who God is. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? But if your faith is in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. To quote the great prophet Winnie the Pooh. Pooh says, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. Sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. There are small things that feel like big things that take up more room in your heart than the pursuit of God than the getting up just a little extra early to go before God and just pray. I need to be still and know that you are God. Then the morning, lunchtime, and evening prayer of God, show me where I can extend the love and beauty and grace of your kingdom. The spiritual disciplines that surround this tradition that we're a part of, of praying, fasting, of celebrating, of rejoicing, of doing everything we do for the glory of God and reorienting our lives. If you want ideas, sanctuaryday1.com is a site we made last summer. Just list some spiritual disciplines that help transform our ledger, our budget of our time because our heart can get taken up with a bunch of small things that are insignificant. Name a couple of them today. Name a couple small things that are taking up way too much room that don't have the fire. If you're having trouble like even making sense of this, again, just go back to our silly emo analogy. For those of you who have ever been in love, what was that moment where you felt like you would forsake everything else 
for that person. If you ever had that moment of ache, you understand the fire that burns in the pursuit of the one true thing. And yet our hearts get filled with such small things, things that are not ultimate. And I think it's ultimately because we do not trust that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. So what I wanted to do today, I just wanted to give you a few thoughts on this psalm. And so as we come to the table, actually before we come to the table, I'm gonna invite the band just to play for a few minutes. And I wanna lead you just kind of meditatively through a couple texts. Again, when we talk about the presence of God, we're talking about going before the face of God, of opening ourselves up. But for some of us, we don't know what, what is that, not only what does that feel like, but who is this God we're talking about? Or you fall into the trap that you, you, we think we know. God's love and he's cool and he's pretty nice and he just wants everyone to get along. Like what are the qualities that the scriptures talk about in regards to who God actually is? So I wanna walk us through a couple texts today as we close our time. You ready? You guys, are, you guys are doing okay? I know it's hot in here. We all right? Give me an amen. All right. If nothing else, let me say this. If nothing else, consider this. Be open-minded to the idea that there is no better place to be than walking with God moment by moment. It wouldn't it be worth wouldn't it be worth beginning to change the practices, the actual physical ledger of our lives to begin to wake up to the God who's with us? Wouldn't it be worth at least that? Let's hear what God's like. Again, if for you you want to put two feet on the floor, hands up, if you want to close your eyes, if you want to take a knee, if you want to stand, but get into a position where you can simply receive for a few moments. Hear the fans behind you. You can feel a little bit of the sweat that's been gathering at the bottom of your back. <laughs> Acknowledge that it's there and let it go. Be present here for a moment. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God, what's God like? The Lord your God's with you. The warrior who saves He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This God takes pleasure and delight in his people. In the book of Jonah, we have a character who's being told to go to the ultimate enemy, the worst of the worst, these people who have harassed harassed him and his people, and he doesn't want to go. And so after a few days that Jonah spends underwater, (laughs) we read, going to the Assyrians seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love 
a God who relents from sending calamity. Our God is a God of love for even those who appear to not deserve it. Psalm 64, turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. My soul is in anguish. He says, turn and deliver me. Psalm 17, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Show me the wonders of your great love. Psalm 105, a phrase that's repeated over and over and over. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Forever is this image of something that you can't see. It's like beyond the horizon. The Hebrew text, it's like like beyond the thing you can see. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And it's not just that God's loving. Apparently, it's his very nature. 1 John 4, 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So in this moment, any other image you have of God, let it go. Yes, God is wrathful against the injustice in our own hearts and in the world. Yes, God is just. Yes, our God is holy and beautiful and set apart. But the primary characteristic above all else expressed in Jesus and given in the scriptures is a God of love. All else flows from his love. Any other image you have of God in this moment, let it go. Imagine just the room like slowly being filled with water. It's like creeping up through the cracks, covering your shoes, rising, rising. And this giant room with these lofted ceilings is just filled with water. You are embraced by that kind of love. A world drenched with the grandeur and glory of the God who is love. Lord, we too often do not treasure the walking with you sitting and acknowledging who you are, what you have done, and giving you praise. And so as we come to the table, as we dip the bread into the cup, and are reminded of Christ's body, your body broken and blood poured out for us, 
We praise you that you've made your presence among your people. Praise you that you have revealed what the life, life with God looks like. It's what Jesus does to us, or he gives us, imparts his life to us. Gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us into deeper wells of understanding of God. Enlightening our hearts, Paul says. And so may we remember that to be before the face of God is to be before the God who forgives us of our sins. That as we dip the bread, Christ's body, into the cup, Christ's blood poured out for us, we are reminded of the great sacrifice, of the good news of God's grace and forgiveness, of the blank slate, of the new beginning. And that we are reminded that in some way God is with us mysteriously in this moment. And that God's spirit goes with us, his presence ever before us. So Lord, open our hearts that we may know you, God, in some deeper way today as we take communion. Would you fill and trans? Would you transform our passions, Lord, that we would not be people who judge our walk by what we believe about you, but by how we truly, Lord, walk toward you. If it's true that we are what we want, Lord, then when you ask us, God, when you ask me, when I hear Jesus asking me, "What do you want, Andrew?" God, I want my desires so transformed that my answer is a quick and unashamed you, Lord. I want you. More than anything else, I want you. Better is one day with you, Lord, than thousands elsewhere. All good things flow, Lord, from you. Pray all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.